Welcome to Hollywood Remixed, a Hollywood Reporter podcast about cultural shifts in entertainment. I'm Rebecca Sun, senior reporter. And I'm Rebecca Ford, awards editor. The reason for this podcast is because we're in a time in which diversity and inclusion are hotter buzzwords than ever. And so it becomes even more important to place these current milestones in context. Each episode, we'll do a deep dive into a single topic, a type of story or a type of character that has been traditionally underrepresented or misrepresented in pop culture. For this week's episode, we're going to explore the portrayal of black fatherhood in both film and TV. Later on in the episode, we'll speak with This Is Us star Sterling K. Brown, who will next be seen in the beautiful upcoming family drama, Waves. But before we sit down with Sterling, we're going to take a look back at some of the most iconic fathers in television, but also explore what kind of messages these portrayals give to viewers. I think one unique aspect of this week's topic is that when it comes to black fathers, there has been this prevailing stereotype that comes not so much from film and television, but maybe mostly from the news media, this characterization that black men are absentee or deadbeat fathers and are not around to help support the family and raise the children. Right. And so statistically, first of all, that's not true. The CDC tracks things like this, and they found that among African-American households, I mean, it shouldn't need to be said, but there are more black men who live with their children than those who don't. And in fact, those who do, African-American fathers are, are more highly engaged than those from other races. So statistically, that stereotype isn't true. The reason why this matters is because the perception of like absentee black fathers, it plays into this large your problematic narrative about black families. Politicians, media pundits will use it to blame black families for problems with um, criminal justice or with drugs or things like that. And they say, well, it's because your families are broken. You know, it can insinuate, you know, at, at the very best, you know, irresponsibility. But at the worst, I mean, it exaggerates correlations to violence and crime Mm -hmm. and just like further alienates Mm -hmm. people. So when we were going back and looking at these iconic portrayals, I think we should start in the 1970s and what I call the Norman Lear universe. The Normanverse. The Normanverse. The Learverse. Learverse. You know, Norman Lear always been a huge champion of inclusion, even when that was not absolutely not in vogue. But, um, you know, Sanford and Son, Good Times, The Jeffersons, these are all iconic 70s sitcoms that featured very different dads. So this was Red Fox playing Fred Sanford, John Amos, James Evans Jr. Sr., I'm sorry, in Good Times. And of course, George Jefferson, who was started in All in the Family, went to the Jeffersons. These are all different dads. They have different backgrounds from like sort of you know, kind of working class, you know, juggling lots of different jobs to moving on up to the east side. They had different personalities, um, you know, cranky, prideful, all different things. But one thing that was consistent was they were all depicted as loyal to their children Mm -hmm. and they were all depicted as devoting to providing for their families. And that was a strong through line with these three dads is they were trying to figure out how to provide for their families. Yeah, I think they're definitely positive portrayals mm-hmm. of black fathers. And, and I think as we go through all this, you see there are there have been a lot mm-hmm. on television. And, and the great thing about TV is you get to spend years, if not decades, with these characters and they become like a part of your family. They're so, literally in your living room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, a lot of people we talk to have very strong, you know, relationships essentially with these characters over the time. I think the next one we should obviously talk about you know, it's the Cosby show. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, as Sterling will tell us later, is 
such an important show to so many people, which now is sort of met with more complicated feelings because obviously of Bill Cosby. But the show itself and the impact of Clip Huxtable was really significant at the time when the show did come out. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it spent five straight seasons as the number one show on television. And I think the only other sitcom that's ever done that is All in the Family. Mm -hmm. You know, this was... The, the Cosby Show was important because it was everybody's favorite show. And so right. it normalized this image of, you know, a very stable family who, that was African-American, you know, two parents, both highly educated working professionals because Cliff was a doctor and Claire was a lawyer, mm-hmm. you know, upper middle class, five kids. It was super relatable. And the fact that you could see that and they were black, but they were exemplary, they were role models, was was really important. Yeah. So when we get to the 90s, there's sort of a wealth of amazing father figures. I was a big fan of Family Matters and remember Carl Winslow mm-hmm. very fondly. But then you also have the Wayan brothers and Moesha and Sister Sister. And they all all had patriarchs in them that were, yeah, really relatable and funny and and lovable. And I think we we definitely have to mention Uncle Phil. Yeah. Yeah. That's a standout. And that's something Sterling will talk about later in the show. But, you know, he really ranks near the top of most lists of overall best TV dads. But certainly, even though he was technically, I mean, yes, he was Carlton and Hillary and Ashley's dad. But He was Will's uncle. He was Will's father figure. And what I love is once in a while, I mean, I think a lot of people remember that iconic scene, like, why don't he want me? It's the one when Will's dad comes back to town and then like, like ditches him and, Mm -hmm. and he basically Will collapses in his uncle's arms. And I love the fact that I think it's LeBron James who once in a while, like will retweet that clip and be like, (laughs) it still gets me, man. And it truly does. It's, it's iconic and it's, a great example of the fact that you can be a great dad even when you're not the biological father. Right. Yeah. We'll touch briefly on film. Obviously, TV is sort of the more significant story here just because you do get uh, emotionally attached to those fathers. But, you know, Denzel has played a lot of notable dads from He Got Game to John Q and then more recently in Fences. All very intense dads. Denzel <laughs> is always intense, but, you know, it's always amazing to see him take on those roles, of course. And then, um, you know, going back to Boys in the Hood, I think that Lawrence Fishburne as Furious Styles was somebody who was a very impactful black dad in film because this was a guy who was raising his son in South Central L.A. And he was just full of these like monologues, these like really intelligent talks, life lessons about gentrification and about just how to survive. And and he was a great example of being a good dad in a very dangerous environment. I think in light of John Witherspoon passing away a couple of weeks ago, we should talk about his screen legacy. He played Pops in The Wayans Brothers, but he also played Ice Cube's dad in Friday. And I think a couple, you know, in the days since his passing, I saw a lot of people retweet that scene when he finds um, Craig with a gun in his room. And he gives him this great speech that, you know, only John Witherspoon can really deliver and say, and he basically says, put that gun down, put your dukes up. Now you're a man. And again, a depiction of how life-saving a father can be, especially when you are growing up in a very dangerous environment. 
So obviously in peak TV these days, we have plenty of father figures on the hundreds and hundreds of shows out there. Um, so just to mention a few, obviously on Blackish, you have Anthony Anderson's Andre Johnson, Scandal, there was um, Olivia's, Olivia's dad. Olivia's dad. Very stern spy dad. Good yeah. at giving dramatic speeches. Yeah. And, you know, Queen Sugar has a wealth of characters, including Ralph Angel. And on Empire, we have Terrence Howard's Lucius Lyon, who is a, a complicated man, I guess is what we'd call him but uh definitely a memorable one yeah and and, you know again that's the dream right to have multi-dimensional characters to have enough out there where not one character has to represent black fathers for everyone Mm -hmm. um speaking of which we are now so excited to welcome sterling k brown who plays a number of different father figures in his upcoming works sterling k brown is best known for Right now, playing Randall Pearson, the married father of three on NBC's This Is Us, which is now airing its fourth season. And you'll next get to see him playing a another father figure, but a very different one in the beautiful emotional family drama Waves, which opens in theaters beginning November 15th. Sterling, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Rebecca. <laughs> yes. So we're going to start with This Is Us. And I'm curious what personal experiences or Outside inspirations have helped you sort of shape Randall to be who he is. I think every character starts with you, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I think every character is sort of a different version of you. It's just which aspect of your personality you wish to highlight at that particular time. I think there's a, an adorableness <laughs> to Randall that is inherent to, to yours truly as well. I understand what it's like to pursue perfection and how that can kind of get in the way of having the most joyful life. So I think the anxiety that that Randall lives with is something that I understand. I would like to say that I'm not living with it currently because I've given myself permission to fail more Mm -hmm. than Randall does. And recognizing that there's something very fruitful that can come from that failure, that that's not the end of something, it's the beginning of something new. I, unlike him, am not raised by white people. Mm -hmm. My family is all black. (laughs) (laughs) But I do have that understanding of what it's like to be a fish out of water. I I went to college preparatory schools for high school and was one of a few African-Americans in my class. So I do know what that feeling of isolation can be like. I grew up in a black neighborhood in St. Louis called Indian Meadows, the name of my production company. And so when I went to St. Louis Country Day, which was my high school, there was this interesting feeling of like people in my neighborhood thought that I was trying to be better than them because I went to Country Day. And then people who I went to school with, you know, I was still a black dude amongst pretty much an all white surrounding. So this idea of like, where do I fit? Where is my space? Was something that I think I bring to Randall as well. And I think everybody goes through that to some degree or another at a different point in time in their life. Where do I belong mm-hmm. exactly? So that's Randall. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, given that like you're very accustomed to like living in two worlds, you know, I was curious about how much collaboration you have with the writers and with, you know, just sort of shaping Randall beyond the before it gets to the performance aspect. Sure. You know? I go into the writers room all the time. 
And I go in there because, number one, I'm curious. I love to see how the sausage is made, you know. I want to be in the room where it happens. Shout out to Hamilton. <laughs> um, but also I want to be there so much that they become accustomed to me that I can be a fly on the wall. Because I'm really interested in like how they talk about the characters and they don't change their behavior because I'm present. And so I, I think I have grown and developed a level of comfort with all of our writers that I simply just get a chance to sit back and observe. Then there are times in which they'll come to me and they'll be like, what do you think about this idea? Or they'll be talking about something that will spark an idea in my head and I'll share. And sometimes my pitches, you know, go to the wayside. <laughs> and sometimes they actually find their way into the fabric of the story. I went to Stanford University, but my second choice was Howard University mm -hmm. um, <laughs> that I also applied to. So Randall has like a, a Howard connection as well. There are little improvs that I'll do. Like I remember in season one, I was doing something where I was trying to get William to come off the street. And I said, ah, it's just your friendly neighborhood, black guy, no need to worry. And it was just you improving, and sometimes they leave it in, sometimes they don't. I also remember one time in season one, uh, Kevin and I, oh Justin, gosh. we were having a fight yes. in New York City, mm -hmm. and Seth Myers comes through, and then we hear the police, and I was like, you know, let's get out of here, I'm still black. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's a true sort of statement, <laughs> right. and it's said for a comic relief, but like, no, for real, I am still black, we need to be up out. So there, it's a wonderful collaboration. Dan Fogelman is my dude. Like, I love him, I love our writers. He always has at least three African-American writers in the writer's mm -hmm. room so that things get to be filled out and fleshed out in a way that feels authentic. Um, and they're always welcome to either myself or Susan, anybody's voice who has an opinion on how something should go. I never feel as if our input falls on deaf ears. Like, it's a collaborative process from the beginning. Mm -hmm. When we were researching this episode, you know, Randall always ends up on sort of best portrayals of black father lists on the internet because fathers fathers in general yeah because he is such a well-rounded character and and so beloved but i'm curious for you what were some of your priorities for aspects of randall that you wanted to be a part of this show that especially because he is a black father like what were sort of your priorities for what parts of him you needed to be shown yeah i think sort of i love the idea of him being hyper intelligent mm -hmm. right let me even go back just one step. Yeah. He's present. Mm -hmm. You know, I think in the national conversation, the idea is that black men as fathers are, are absent. Right. Right? And so just a father who is present, who is active, who is doting on his children, who is supportive of his wife, right? I thought that all of those things were incredibly important because I like to believe that that's the kind of father that I am in real life. Mm -hmm. And the men that I went to college with who've grown into having families and, and wives are, are those kinds of men. And so we would like to see ourselves up on screen. I love the fact that he has a sense of humor. And I think when Dan first pitched Randall to me, like, you know, he's the most serious of all the three of them. He's the most stable. And I was like, okay, he's the most stable, but he's also fun, right? Um, he can laugh at himself um, and tease his family in a good-hearted way, so it's not so severe in the house, right? I needed to have light be present. And then just the fact that he's that smart, he's smarter than me, right? 
I'm a decently intelligent human <laughs> being, but uh, Randall is super duper smart. And sometimes that actually gets in his way. Analysis can lead to paralysis, you know, also sort of contributing to his anxiety because he lives so much inside of his head. I think that was sort of there from the beginning, but it, it became more developed over time. Mm-hmm. You mentioned, you know, there's always a part of yourself in, in every role. And I was wondering if we could sort of take you back now to, you know, your childhood. I, I know that in your first your speech for your first Emmy Award, you know, you gave a really great tribute to your dad. Yeah. And I know he passed when you were a kid. I was wondering if you would feel comfortable kind of just sharing about what kind of man he was and what kind of father he was. Uh, my dad, Sterling Brown Jr., and this is a completely unbiased, objective opinion, was the greatest man who <laughs> ever lived on the planet. Facts. Yeah, this is just facts. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? This is not anything outside of just truth. No, seriously. He, so he was a lot of fun. He loved to tell jokes. He told a lot of jokes that wouldn't fly in 2019, <laughs> but jokes in 1983 or 84, is like, Dad, you shouldn't be saying that, but it's funny. He loved my mom and was flirtatious and playful, and I remember like seeing them kiss and being like, oh my gosh. I can remember one time they had a party at our house, and my mom was upstairs, and she gave me a note to pass to my dad. And so I went downstairs, you know, folks are drinking, playing pool. I passed him the note and dude disappeared for like 20 (laughs) minutes. And then they came back to the party and it just kept going. And like it took me, it was like not in the moment, but years later I was like, oh, you nasty people. Because they knew how to get down, man. They knew how to get down. It's like an OG booty call. OG booty booty call. Before the texting. My dad's first car that I remember him having was a 1979 pink Eldorado Cadillac with pink leather interior, right? Like, that was his thing. We had an eight-track player inside. Michael McDonald was his favorite musician, right? I remember going to the barbershop with him, and when he came to the barbershop, they were like, yo, Sterl, what's going on? Like, he was Norm. He was the Norm of Cheers. That's what my dad was to the barbershop. And they'd play cards and they'd play dominoes. And my dad was really good with numbers, right? And so his formal education didn't go very far. He got a high school degree, did a, a semester towards an associate's, but that was it. But the man had common sense. Mm-hmm. He knew how to read a room. Like he knew how not to speak until he knew what the situation was. My mother has like two or three different graduate degrees not hardly as street smart (laughs) as my dad. Like, my mom will come into a room and say the most inappropriate thing. (laughs) And so I have that part of my mom. But then I have the other part of my dad, too, who can just sort of, like, assess a situation and know how to fit in like water, right? So I was his only child. I have an older brother and an older sister from my parents, from my mom's first marriage, who I love dearly. And I also have a little brother and a little sister who are adopted. So that's another sort of thing that I can relate to with regards to Randall. But being his child, he loved to hug, he loved to kiss, and we kissed on the lips, right? I can remember one time when I was around nine, and I, like, gave him my cheek when he went to kiss me, and he said, well, you too old to kiss your old man? <laughs> and I was like, all right. And I gave him a kiss. 
because I felt precious to him. Like, I remember falling asleep. You guys noticed, like, falling asleep in the back of the car at the end yeah. of the night mm-hmm. and pretending to still be asleep just so your parents could pick you up. Like, you know, eight, nine, ten, it didn't matter. Like, I love that feeling of, like, somebody loves me enough to p- take my long ass and drape them over their shoulders and around <laughs> their waist and carry me and put me in bed. Like, that's, that's who my dad was. He's great. That was the most beautiful beautiful thing I've heard on this podcast, (laughs) I think. Off the top. Um, And I guess let's stay with that part of your life, but I'm curious, on TV or in film, were there fathers or families that really made an impression on you when you were growing up or that you really um, related to or resonated with you? Yeah, let's see. I mean, so this is is an interesting thing because it's a... difficult thing to talk about without placing an asterisk on it now. Yes, I understand. You kind of have yep. to place an asterisk on it. Yep. I mean, the Cosby show was huge. Mm-hmm. Right. It, it was massive. Like, Heathcliff and Claire Huxtable were America's parents, you know? And the love that they had for each other and the playfulness that they shared with their children while also creating a structure and an expectation for them to go out into the world. But they also had enough space to recognize that their children were individuals and they each needed something different from them. Oh, man, it's, I, I am saddened by the fact that like I have to place the asterisk mm-hmm, on right. it and try to separate you know, the individual and his acts in real life from the character that he created and mm-hmm. the show that he gave. But the show itself was huge, yeah. mm-hmm. right? That, that was the primary influence, yeah. Yeah, for sure. formative. And so now, kind of fast forward into the present, you know, I know that you um, have two boys of your own and your yes. dad. And I, cause, because I follow you on Instagram, they're, oh, do you? Okay. They are, they're, they're good dancers. They are very good they're dancers. They're good dancers. <laughs> they're very outgoing and they're, they're awesome. But I was curious about how, first of all, I mean, just all of those experiences, both on screen and in, in real life with your dad, how you bring that into being a real life father. And then maybe also how your work changed once you became a, a dad. Let me start with the last part first. It, it changed dramatically. Being a dad has been the best role that I've ever voluntarily taken on. It's the most challenging thing that I think somebody can do in life, but simultaneously the most fulfilling thing. The cliche is you don't know what love is until you have a child is true. <laughs> and I was like, I know what love is. You know what I'm saying? I love my wife. I love my mama. I love everybody, right? And then, so I delivered my first child, right? Wow. We didn't make it. We were supposed to go to like a birthing center. It happened really fast because my wife had her first contraction at 11 p.m. And Andrew was born at 2.23 in the morning. So three hours and 23 wow. minutes, which doesn't normally happen. And so I w- we were there at home by ourselves as he started to wriggle his way out and I caught him and then placed him on her chest so that they could start nursing. And I was like, this is magic. Like magic just happened in front of my eyes. Then the midwife finally made it there. And while the midwife was attending to my wife, my son took his first nap on my chest as I laid in the bed next to her. And I was like, okay, <laughs> there's, a, there's access to a portal in my heart that I didn't even know existed before, and now it is wide open. Mm-hmm. So I think I was a good actor before, and I, I think I'm getting better. 
But I don't think I would be where I am right now without the presence of Andrew Jason Sterling Brown and Amari Michael Ryan Christian Brown, right? So that was the, that's the last part first. Mm -hmm. In terms of how being a dad on screen could possibly inform the way that I am with my children in real life, I'll say with regards to waves, because Ronald is a much more stern father figure than I am, and there's sternness in me, right? Especially with the firstborn. <laughs> Parents tend to relax with the second yeah. kid a little bit. <laughs> for some time. reason, it's like, he'll be all right. This, this too <laughs> shall pass. But with that first kid, you're like, all oh, your hopes and dreams are like, I need you to read by two, right? <laughs> and I need you to, to know the periodic table by four. Like, he's dealing with two Stanford parents, and it's like, come on, man. How come he doesn't understand? <laughs> so you have to, like, take a deep breath and relax and recognize that they are exactly where they're supposed to be, right? But it, I have to remind myself of that from time to time because you want, everybody wants their children to go beyond what they have achieved in life, right? And my wife and I are both sort of overachieving people. And so that can be a lot of pressure for a child. Mm -hmm. And so we, as a collective, are both like, all right, we may be going a little too hard right now. <laughs> Let's ease back. Like he just, we just found out he was reading at a sixth grade level. And I think my wife said something to the effect like, shouldn't it be higher than that? Oh my God. He's in the third grade. He's in the third grade. <laughs> <laughs> he's in the third grade. We're like, all right, so take a big Ujjayi breath. Like he's doing great. Yeah, Do you more know than what great. I mean? Yeah. But, but we have to check ourselves. Mm -hmm. we, we actively have to check ourselves. And so Ronald doesn't necessarily check himself with his child. Like he knows the information that he has in his mind is right and needs to p be passed on to his child. But he doesn't necessarily create space for his child to share what's going on in his life, how his dad is impacting the way in which he feels pressurized. And it's not a two-way conversation. Mm -hmm. So I think both my wife and I make sure that our children, in particular the oldest, feels that he has the space to express himself when things aren't going the way that he wants to and know that his voice is as important as anybody else's in the house. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you've brought up Waves, and we both got to see the film, and it is incredible. Like Thank I felt you. like it had such a grip on my heart for the entire time I was watching it, and I can't wait for everyone else to see it. But I'm curious how you worked with the director, Trey Edward Schultz. Mm -hmm. I talked to him and Kelvin Harrison, Jr., That's who it. also stars in the film, and um, they he talked a lot about working together to sort of capture the experience of this family, because Trey is obviously white yes. and wanted to make sure he really captured um, the experience of a black family correctly. So I'd love to hear how you sort of worked with him to shape your character as well. First of all, just anecdotally, when I heard that there was this movie Waves with this black family in the middle and it's um, directed by a dude named Trey, <laughs> it's like, oh, who is this brother? Right. Never heard of him before, <laughs> right? Yeah. And then even I spoke to him on the phone and, and Trey has a lot of bass in his voice. I was like, all right, what's up, man? He's like, hey, how you doing, Sterling? Nice to meet you. I was like, yeah, 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 it's nice to meet you too. So we had a bass off for a second. <laughs> and then I saw his first movie, Cresha, and I was like, this dude is white! <laughs> But what I love about how the story came to be what it is, 
is that it's sort of autobiographical for Trey. And he's lived with the story for a long time. But in his second movie, It Comes at Night, he had cast Kelvin. And they sort of developed a real strong bond and affinity for one another, recognizing that they wanted to work together again. So he presented it to Kelvin and said, like, there's a couple of roles that you could possibly play, the role of the son, the role of the boyfriend. And Kelvin was like, I like the son part, right? Yeah. Now, Kelvin at the time, from what they tell me, was a buck 15 soaking wet. Oh, he's wow. like, you know, he's going to be a wrestler in the film. He's like, I can do it. And Trey likes to say, like, dude, you couldn't even chop wood in the last <laughs> movie. How are you going to do this? So Kelvin trained. He trained. He added, like, 35 pounds of muscle and was eating 3,000 calories a day. Wow. And so I remember going to meet Kelvin. And I met him after I spoke to Trey because I actually had concerns about the story. I was concerned about the central event of the film and whether or not I wanted to see a young black man depicted in a very particular way. Mm -hmm. um, so I was nervous, I felt very protective. And Trey was like, I understand what you're saying and I don't want that to happen either. So if you have any ideas, I'm open to that. Like he had, was very egoless about like how to like uh, take my experience and my sort of perspective of the story and incorporate it. And then he's like, maybe you should sit down and talk to Kelvin, too. And so Kelvin and I met in Los Angeles. I took him to grab a bite to eat because he's in the middle of training and was eating like, you know, I don't know if you guys have young men in your family, but my, my parents used to look at me when I was 14, 15, 16, and they just watch me eat. And they'd be like, where do you put it? <laughs> like, as I was feeding him. I was watching this young man eat, and I was like, good Lord, son, are, you, are they feeding you? <laughs> um, but he was trying to add all these calories so that yeah. he could keep his mass on, right? And he was talking about why he wanted to do the film and how he hadn't seen a young black man be able to occupy this space, that we were either being deified or vilified and not just allowed a space of humanity to be valuable, right, while still being a good person. Mm -hmm. And he was interested in exploring that space. And I said, I understand, and I completely agree with you. But once you do this, it's no longer just yours. It's the audience's, and however they respond to it, they are entitled to that response. And I just want to make sure you're going into it eyes wide open and not sort of with, like, rose-colored glasses. And he said, I understand what you're saying. He said, it's a good part, though, right? I said, it's a really good part. And he said, should I not do it just because I'm black? And I was like, oh, snap. <laughs> you know, touche, young man, touche. And, and so the fear that I had for him, I recognized was not a reason not to do the film, but it, the exact reason why I should do the film, because this father probably felt very similarly for his child as I felt for Kelvin going into this experience, right? But he and Trey together sort of formulated the version of the script that came to me, where they would have conversations and Kelvin would talk about what it was like for him to be a young black man growing up in Louisiana with a father who put a lot of pressure on him to be excellent in a very specific way. And Trey combined that with his own paternal experiences and both like with their relationships with women and how those things sort of influence the relationships that we see in the film. And so it came 
with a level of nuance and respect to the fact that it is now an African-American family. And so when we would play on the day, it wasn't so much about changing lines, but what Trey allowed for was a great deal of improv and play. And so if there is anything that Renee Lee Scoldsbury or myself had to add from the parents' perspective, we were allowed to play in a way that felt um, unsupervised. Like, we trust you to take these characters where they need to go. And a lot of stuff made it into the film. The first scene in the diner where ultimately they say, like, you know, the good and noble father will do this. And they're like, well, let me know when he shows up. <laughs> and, uh, and then Tyler, Kelvin's character, is like, yeah, I'd like to see him when he gets here. And I was like, you want to go? And he's like, we can go right now. That was totally improv. Oh, wow, <laughs> interesting. And we just started clearing the table. And Renee and Taylor were like, what are you dudes doing? And we just started arm wrestling. And what I love when I watch the scene is that it starts off sort of fun, but it's a real sort of testing of manhood that's transpiring at the same time, where, where the young man thinks it's his, it's his turn to sort of take over, and the old man's like, not today, not today. So yeah. Yeah. That's something that I think the men in my life had shared. There is a moment for men in particular when the son realizes, or the father and the son both realize that the the strength, that power dynamic has shifted. Sure. And it's it's a very formative sort of experience. I Absolutely. Think, you know, for both of them. I think that, you know, like you said, the, the father-son dynamic, this family dynamic is very universal. Um, there was also there was also a specificity to it that I'm curious if that came out of, you know, the that improving or the workshop you guys had. I'm thinking of that scene in your home office, right, where, you know, Ronald says, I mean, he basically has that, does that speech where he says, I'm hard on you because you have to work harder to achieve less. And that is something that I think is particular. I think they had a similar speech on Scandal. It's very particular to black parents and teaching their kids. Um, Was that something that came out of those, you know, like how did that element, that understanding of why Ronald gets some of his strictness from think that came that was in the script Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that was Kelvin and and Trey talking to each other about like the things that are were instilled into Kelvin and were very much instilled into me it's a real conversation that happens all the time that I've even had with my eight-year-old son right because the way in which we can be perceived is such that people are looking for ways to dismiss you Mm -hmm. like the expectations aren't as high people will sort of track you towards the lowest common denominator and you have to fight against their expectations in order to be seen as excellent, right? And so there wasn't anything that I did in terms of changing the script, but I think because it's something that Kelvin knew intimately and that I knew intimately as well, it was something where it wasn't just character talking to character, but it was a kind of actor talking to actor. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, both of those things run along the same parallel. Like, bruh, we can't afford to be up in here and mess this shit up because they'll find the next whoever, whoever. You know, I I still feel like I live in a place where uh, of great expendability, Hmm. you know, and I have a running joke. On, on This Is Us, I was like, oh, they're going to bring in Makai. Or they already got Omar to come in and do a guest spot. The next thing is Omar takes over as Randall Pearson. So it's like there's only so much latitude that we are allowed before it's like, all right, dude, you, you tried. We gave you a second. Like if they replaced Aunt Viv, anybody. You know what I'm saying? Anybody. Anybody. Replaced, yeah, anybody. <laughs> 
I also wanted to ask, I wanted to really quick ask you about Black Panther because you actually played a father yeah. in Black Panther. Killmonger's dad sure. for the two people who, you know. <laughs> yes, to see the giant blockbuster film. Discovered electricity yesterday. <laughs> right um, you know, I thought what was amazing about Black Panther to me is, I mean, to me that film is basically, it's an allegory of the history of the African-American experience. Yeah. And it's just masquerading as this superhero movie. Sure. You know, you have this scene, which I went back and watched on YouTube yesterday, still has the same power. You know, that sort of dream sequence in the middle with Michael B. Jordan. And I'm curious about whether or not to me it but i don't want to i don't want to speak for you how that dynamic between how eric was raised without yeah. a father you know a dad who died violently what do you think that says that representation sort of comments on like you mentioned earlier this widespread perception that boys who grow up in that kind of background you know their dads are absent right. you know just that whole commentary on that i think well, I think it's profound in the shaping of Killmonger because I think Njobu, his father, had noble intentions. He saw himself as being a part of a greater brotherhood than what his brother, T'Chaka, the Black Panther before, saw, right? For him, it was about Wakanda. For Njobu, it was about all black people who were descendants of Africa. And we have an opportunity to be of service. People are losing their lives. There is a war in terms of poverty, uh, in terms of resources, in terms of where we are forced to live, that we are given less and less opportunities. But we, as Wakandans, have the opportunity to be of service to our people, right? And so these noble intentions that reside within, Njob within Njobu, now with the loss of his life, he's not able to fully articulate his desire for his son. And so his son has the kernel of information of which his father began with, and now a deep-seated hatred. And it gets distorted, mm -hmm. and it turns into something else, right? And it breaks my heart. Like, even in doing the scene, like, Ryan was like, Yo, I don't want you crying. I don't want you crying in this scene. Like, it's not about tears or nothing. I was like, but there's a sense of loss that I feel in having misled my child down a path that I never intended him to explore, mm -hmm. right? And he would tell Michael, like, Mike, don't cry. He's like, yo, but Sterl's crying. <laughs> I don't know what to do. Like, it's, just, it's just sort of organically happening in the moment. And thankfully, they just let it play because it was what was real to us in that moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The viewers did. I mean, I do remember, again, this is very fresh in my mind, but like when they cut to adult Eric and he's crying and, yeah. and mm -hmm. it's the first time in the movie he's really let down his right. vulnerability mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. So you, you've mentioned a little bit about, you know, when it came to Waves, your concern with the portrayal of Kelvin's character sure. or how you you know, it was important for Randall to be present. So you, I, it sounds like you are very conscious of sort of what these characters represent, you know, to viewers. So when you're looking for your next role, you're reading scripts, you're figuring out what you're going to do next, how much is that present in your mind when you're reading a character or a story about the responsibility you may have? It's pretty present. Yeah. Like, I, I try not to let it be the first thing like my first thing is like how I respond to a character organically mm -hmm. but I do have this sort of litmus test that I 
thought about for a long time. This is going to sound really strange. <laughs> but I love Ace Ventura Pet Detective. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I did not expect you to say yeah, that. that I know. Like, I we didn't think we were going there. Right? <laughs> I love Ace Ventura Pet Detective. I love Jim Carrey. I think the dude is brilliant. Been watching him since in Living Color. Mm -hmm. He's a genius, right? Mm -hmm. And I would say to myself, as a young actor in high school, if I did this role exactly the same way that Jim Carrey did it, they would say I was Coonan. Oh. Okay? Ah. Like, if I did it exactly the same way as a black man, I'd be like, ooh, I don't know if I could get away with a lot of that stuff, right? And that's the reality. Like, that's really just the truth. You'd have to do it a different way. There has to be an eye and a sensitivity towards recognizing we've been led into a track of buffoonery in our past that has led to a dehumanization and being like a caricature that if you're not cognizant of, is easy to fall back into, right? So I love black people a great deal and owe a lot to where I am in my career because of my family, because of my community at Stanford University, um, hashtag chocolate cardinal, <laughs> rise up, like who've always had my back. And so I wanna make sure that the people who I represent are proud of the representation um, that I put out into the world. I ask that too because I know inevitably I'll do something where I muck it all up. So like bear with me as I move forward and learn from my mistakes. But like I, I want for people to have a feeling of like I see myself up there. I see you making great choices and, and, and showing us in a way that is not always seen in media. And thank you. Like that's always like my favorite compliment when people say like, yo, man, you did something with this one. Thank you. Yeah, I can't not think about it. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you just mentioned some, you know, some of that sort of response. Um, are there any sort of specific responses you've had from people who've responded to your work? Um, I'm, I'm thinking probably specifically men or maybe people who are just thinking of their dads. Yeah. I've had a lot of different things. Let's see. A lot of people who deal with anxiety mm -hmm. have come up to me and said, like, thank you for putting that out on screen because people can feel alone with their anxiety and then they see someone who is living a full life with you know a wife and children and a job and is sort of excelling at those things but still has anxiety that they have to wrestle with that's been huge that's been mm -hmm. really big mm -hmm. yeah. um transracial adoptee yeah. community <laughs> which is a community, and they'd be like, yo, man, I was raised by white people, and I was like, yo! Right? <laughs> <laughs> but just, I mean, it's a really interesting sort of space to occupy where I was actually watching a Red Table talk the other day um, where they had a young black woman who was raised by a white family like in Alabama or Mississippi in the South with no other black people around. And she was saying like, when she looks in the mirror sometimes, she's often shocked to see like a black face mm -hmm. looking back at her. Wow. Really good Red Table Talk. Yeah. Big up to you, Jada, yeah, and Mama, and baby. Um, so that community, I've had people actually come up to me with babies strapped to their chests 
and be like, you know, I adopted this child because of you. Wow. That's huge. Which was huge. Even in season one, somebody came up to me like, yo, man, I quit my job because of you. I was like, nobody asked you to quit your job. (laughs) Don't you put that on me. He's like, no. (laughs) I was thinking about it already, but then I saw Randall be like, you know, I don't need this. And he's like, then I did it. I was like, okay, if it felt it was right for you, that's cool. Last year in particular, a lot of married people were really, first, really troubled by the depiction of of Randall and Beth and be like, look, I need you guys to hold it together. Like, please. Even my own wife was like, if Cookie and Lucius can make it, (laughs) you two Negroes need to get it together. (laughs) And so we actually made it through. but, But making it through, I think a lot of folks were like, yo, that's real. Like, good people in a good marriage can sometimes lose their way, and to see them fight their way back together was something that gave hope, ultimately. So it, it runs the gamut to just, can I have a hug? Mm-hmm. Like, in the grocery store, at the drugstore, whatever, people will see and just want a hug. Because there's something about the character and, and our show that just opens people up and they don't even realize that they may have cut themselves off from feeling things. And then they watch the show, and they're like, yo, this need to connect just sort of feels present. And like when they see, I've had people just hug me and cry. Mm -hmm. It's been so sweet and so loving. I was like, I still got to buy this milk. (laughs) 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 But in that moment, it's pretty cool. That's awesome. That's amazing. So we wrap up um, every episode with two sort of thematic questions for you. The first one is called Hollywood Remixed, Mm -hmm. and it's what is one past example of a black father character that you would love to reboot, to revise, recast from a previous film or show? So it can be like it was because it was great or because like, eh, I think I could have done it, you know. Either way. There's a lot of reboots going around these days, so. That's interesting. (laughs) Um... We talked about Heathcliff Toxable. Mm-hmm. I think uh, Uncle Phil was a, was mm-hmm. a big one for yeah. for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, as a matter of fact, when I play a game, there's this game called Black Card Revoked. And <laughs> look it up. It's a real game. It's a board game. We have an Asian version. Do you? Okay. Gotcha. But there is, depending on like, if you are 35, 36 and up, like you'll, they'll talk about who's the greatest black father mm-hmm. and like, 36 and up, it's usually Heathcliff Huxtable. 36 and down, it's usually Uncle Phil. Yeah, yeah. And so it's really interesting to see like what the generations were watched just based on like a couple of years difference. It's so interesting because as a, as a young person, I'm trying to think of how many representations of black fatherhood there were. And it wasn't, you know, a whole bunch. Mm-hmm. So it probably comes back down to Uncle Phil and, and, and Heathcliff Huxtable. Yeah. Yeah. The last question, it's it's a little bit harder because it's it's called the hidden gem. And hidden we want to just basically be able to give listeners a recommendation that's along with a the theme. So it's, sure. you know, a film show or it doesn't have to be that. It could be an, an article, a podcast or whatever that features a portrayal of, you know, this week's theme, a black father that people should check out. So maybe they haven't heard of yet. Yeah. OK. I adore the pursuit of happiness. I, I absolutely adore it. That, that's a quintessential father-son story 
that makes me ball like a baby mm -hmm. every single time. So in case you forgot it, then remember it. Big up to Will. Um, it's a true story, too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a true story. And then I'll say one that hopefully our people are starting to pay more attention to. And it, it's g receiving a bit of an interesting criticism and then a wonderful dialogue I've seen happen on social media with the introduction of the character Malik on This Is Us being a single father, a teen single father, who chooses to raise his child along with his parents' assistance. And people were saying, like, you know, it's so cliche, teen parent or whatever. But I was like, I've never seen a situation in which the young man is like, I want this child. Hmm. And his parents are like, we want you to have this child and still be able to have a childhood. So we will help you raise this child together. I think that's a first. And I'm really proud of our writers and Dan for even having the idea and dealing with it with the level of sensitivity that we've seen thus far. I think it's a hidden gem within mm -hmm. This Is Us. That's great. That's a great answer. That's perfect. Yes. <laughs> Sterling, you nailed it. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, guys. It was a pleasure. We just want to give a quick shout out to Sterling K. Brown and thank him so much for joining us today. Be sure to tune into This Is Us, which is now airing, and to check out Waves, which begins hitting theaters November 15th. We're actually going to see a lot of Sterling for the rest of the year. He's also voicing a character in that little movie, Frozen 2. And he will also appear on The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which begins its new season on December 6th. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe to Hollywood Remixed on your favorite podcasting platform and tune in next Wednesday, November 20th, when we talk to The Good Place star William Jackson Harper about black nerds. Smell you later. Bye! Bye.